Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. For today's Everyday is Earth Day, we are going to be talking with a regenerative farmer who is going to be speaking at Minnesota State University tonight. It's a chance to learn from an award-winning organic farmer and prairie restoration expert, Carmen Fernholtz. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Now, you are in Madison, Minnesota, correct? Correct. And they have described you as a Minnesota regenerative farming pioneer what exactly does that mean? Just you were one of the first one to start doing some things, and what is it that you do? I guess you could say it that uh, it all goes back to uh, organic farming. And I started farming in 1972, and there was just the beginning uh, talk about organic farming. There was the organic institute, uh, I should say the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania that was doing a magazine called Organic Gardening and Farming, and there was a little conversation going on about it. So uh, early on then, when I started farming, I wanted to do organic farming. And there wasn't any what we'd call certification of organic farming at that time, but there were a few small entrepreneurial companies who were writing up some of their standards. So... In 1975, I started following some of the standards of these small companies, and they themselves were doing the certification for organic. And to uh, make a long story short, by the time we get to the 1990s, the interest in organics had grown to where the U.S. government and USDA put out some national standards, and that's what we have today. Well, so what were those standards like back when you started out in 1970s? Were they relatively similar or, or different at that time because we hadn't maybe known as much information? They were generally a little bit different. They were saying you can't use any herbicides or sprays, and you can't use any commercial fertilizers, and no treated seed. Uh, those were some of the biggest pieces. And then they also wanted a more a robust rotation. They wanted at least three crops in a, in a rotation, the crops like a corn, soybeans, and small grains. Those were the general standards that they were using in the 1970s. You must have been the odd farmer out, I would say, because, you know, this is such a big crop area down here that I, I'm from Wisconsin, and in our part of the woods, we would rotate between alfalfa, corn, and that was basically it. But down here, I see people doing corn, corn, soybeans, soybeans. So I, did the neighbors think you were a little strange? Well, they did, I think. <laughs> and I say, I think, because, and I don't say this uh, derogatorily or anything, but I didn't spend a lot of time at the local restaurants. Oh. <laughs> and, and so I focused a lot on, on what I was doing on the farm and just really wanted to, to make that work. But every once in a while I'd get a little clip from somebody who was saying, what is that uh, crazy farmer east of Madison doing now and things like that. But 
never let it bother me. And uh, today, uh, I mean, people just really uh, appreciate what we've been doing over the years. Because I think a lot of now is people are going back to the way that you were doing all along. I, w- I would say so, definitely. And in fact, it, is, it has gotten up to the, uh, you know, the upper levels of government in uh, USDA and, and the current administration uh, putting out some major dollars now to help farmers transition to organics. Carmen, describe your farm. What is it like? What do you grow on it? How many acres? All that sort of thing. Yes, the, the actual farm that I operated until 2020, and I'm renting it out to a neighbor. I'm still working with him. But the actual farm that I was farming up till then was about 400 acres, and we had corn, soybeans, small grains, and alfalfas. And then uh, when this young farm family that just lives very close by, when I rented it out to him, we introduced a cow-calf herd into the operation. And so we're about halfway to getting up to a 50-cow-calf herd here on the farm. Are you doing beef or dairy? It's beef. Okay. So are you doing some organic pasture-type programs or techniques? Sure. Well, for sure we're doing what they call rotational grazing, and we're probably not going to certify the cattle as organic, not that they're not being managed organically, but uh, the ability to certify like a, a beef herd is is very challenging. The paperwork gets quite can be quite overwhelming. But uh, as we move into the uh, beef herd more, we'll probably look at certifying it as well. But for the present, we're operating them as organic. They're getting all organic feed and and pasture and grazing, but we haven't uh, taken it to the next level yet. I have a question about Kernza. In the descriptor, yes. it talks about you are doing Kernza production and prairie restoration. So both of those things. Talk a little bit about those and why they are important. Yes. Well, there's a new idea out there. Uh, I shouldn't, probably not too new, but Wes Jackson from the Land Institute 25, 30 years ago started thinking of crop production and farming in the perennial manner. In other words, developing crops that are perennial. In other words, you plant them one year and they come back the next year and the year and the year after that. And so over time, the Land Institute has joined with the University of Minnesota and is working on some of these crops. The first crop that's really starting to surface is called, well, its technical name is intermediate wheatgrass, but its copyright name is Kernza. And it is a wheat type of grass. It's really a grass, I guess I should say, more than a wheat, but it is perennial. So we plant it in the fall, harvest it the next year. It comes back, harvest it the next year, and as far as we want. There is a lot of research that needs to be done yet on it because right now the yields, we're talking only pounds per acre. And uh, eventually we hope to be producing as much as as current spring wheat or winter wheat produces. But it the basic point is that it's a perennial, and the reason that we're looking at perennial is our interest and concern for maintaining some kind of a cover on the land to 
protect the land from wind erosion and water erosion and to help build the soil fertility. So uh, this Kernza is only one of approximately 16 different crops that are either perennial or produce continuous living cover through the winter months, 16 crops that are being uh, researched and developed at the University of Minnesota. Well, the only one I could think of is alfalfa, because that's a, a perennial that keeps coming back, so that's the only one I'm familiar with. So yes. What are some of the others that maybe we have or maybe haven't heard of? Sure. They're, uh, they're looking at what they call a winter barley, hmm. and they've got that pretty well developed right now. They're looking at uh, a winter, uh, yeah, a winter camelina, hmm. and then uh, believe it or not, they've taken the weed, the pennycress weed, and they're domesticating it, mm-hmm. and that also would be a, a winter uh, annual. Uh, and so, uh, they're, uh, pennycress they're looking at as an alternative oil source, oh. camelina as an alternative food oil source. And barley, of course, again, providing that winter cover. They're looking, and then they're looking at a perennial flax that uh, is still in development stages. But these are just a couple of them, and one of the more exotic ones is what they're domesticating or trying to domesticate. It's the perennial sunflower. It's native, the prairies, but its productivity is very limited. So these are just a a few of the crops and if anybody is interested, if they go on the university website and Google Forever Green Initiative, they will get a good story on all of these crops. Now, are most of these not widely distributed because they are limited in terms of their production value? Right. They're really not distributed primarily because they're still in the really early development stages. What have you found in terms of Kernza being beneficial? What What is it about it that you've seen that it's a good thing? Yes, it's uh, first of all, it's a perennial, so it comes back each and every year. It provides that great ground cover, and its root system, we're looking at a root development that goes down 8, 10, 12 feet, and so it's, it's uh, sequestering carbon for sure, and, sec- and then it's also helping the soil become more absorbent for water. And then because of this root system, it's building the fer- fertility and structure of the soil just to be much more beneficial. So it's all of those pieces. And one specific benefit that the university is really researching on is its ability to minimize leaching of toxic chemicals and fertilizers, and so consequently some of the wellhead protection areas that some of these communities uh, need for their rural water, the currents is being planted on those acreages to help keep the water from becoming toxic. That's very interesting. I'm working with a water quality committee on a lake here, and they're talking about okay. ways to prevent all the nutrients running into the, the lake, and I don't know that they've looked at that yet, but it sounds like a possibly promising way to do that. It, it is. The big challenge, though, is that when you introduce a new crop, you know, you're going to get farmers to grow it if there's a way that they can market it. And so uh, part of what I've been doing with a group of farmers that are growing Kernza is we have put together a Kernza 
Co-op. Oh. It's called Perennial Promise Growers Cooperative, and we've got about 30 members right now who are growing the Kernza, and we're working with a marketer to develop markets for this Kernza. Is that just over in your area by Madison, Minnesota? No, it includes all of Minnesota oh. and some of Wisconsin, some of northern Iowa, and the eastern Dakotas, and we're going to uh, keep expanding with other growers from other areas if they want to be part of it. Have you done any comparisons, you know, having done organic farming for so many years since the 1970s versus what most other people are doing is the commercial crops? Have you done any comparison to see how your soil rates compared to the others to note that it's better? Is there anything you've done to measure that? I've not done anything specifically to measure it. And I have to say that part of what's going on now with this Kerns of development is that they're more they're focusing more on seeing if there are some significant differences. I can walk out in my field and and definitely see a difference, but I haven't got the data or the measurements to do it. On the other hand, like I can work with the local NRCS office and they've shown me different different demonstrations of how that organic soil, first of all, can absorb much more water uh, in a shorter period of time, how it's less prone to uh, wind and water erosion, and we can certainly demonstrate the number of earthworms per square foot that are present in a lot of organic acres. So these are visual things that we can, can certainly show and demonstrate, but as far as actual research data, that I haven't done anything here, but I'm hopeful that the university will do something now as they're developing this Kernza crop and the other perennial crops. Did you notice through the last couple of years of drought, did your Kernza and other crops, organic crops, fare better than maybe some of the others around you because of the severe drought? I didn't notice anything significantly better, but I did notice that they uh, they kept pace with anything else that was out there. And so that that part seems to be that we're, we're certainly competitive with any non-organic crops. The other thing that we have developed though, over the years now is that our yields are right in line with most of the conventional yields out there. Really? That's what I was wondering, because I think that might be an excuse a lot of folks have for not going organic. Does, does it cost more? If it depends on what you figure. I just had a friend of mine talk to me last night. He's a, a neighbor, a good friend, and told me that it's going to cost him $80 at least per acre just for his chemical costs this oh. year. And he says he has to go over the field four times. So it might be more costly if we look at labor, because I will spend more time out there in the field uh, rotary hoeing or cultivating but generally, we're going to have close to the same costs because a lot of us organic farmers do not have livestock. And so our, one of our major sources of fertility has to, has to be purchasing some of the, the livestock manures from our neighbors. And that's going to cost us very similar to what it would cost me to buy fertilizer from a local fertilizer store. But there's one big difference here, in, except for the manures, that... Uh, an organic farmer will invest 
a significant am- more amount of dollars in equipment besides the besides a planter and the combine. We're going to have a rotary hoe. We're going to have a tine weeder. We're going to have a cultivator. So we have those kinds of equipment, but uh, we it's a one-time investment purchase rather than having to purchase those things year after year. Now, you mentioned tilling and that sort of thing, and I know going over the fields compacts it. Do you go over the field more times than a conventional crops would? I would say when it comes to cultivating and maybe rotary hoeing, yes. But in our operation now, we do not do any fall tillage. Okay. So, so we're, we're eliminating a pass right there. And then in the spring, seedbed preparation, we'll do some shallow seedbed preparation for planting corn and planting soybeans. But when it comes to planting small grain, we will no-till the small grain right into the soybean stubble. So we're eliminating capacity there. So we're getting to be very similar to the conventional operators as far as a number of passes across the field. You received the prestigious honor of Organic Pioneer Award in 2022 from the Rodale Institute. You were one of four recipients to be honored nationally and recognized for your leadership in changing the landscape of regenerative organic agriculture for the better. What sorts of things are all included in that? You mentioned the Kernza, the organic farming, and what other sorts of things you had in terms of leadership? I think part of it is the educational piece. We've had field days, any number of field days. In fact, we've had field days the last three years in a row out here on the farm. And over the years, uh, I've had field days. This past January, I was a keynote speaker at two major conferences, and I'll be coming here to Mankato to speak to you people, and I'll be going down to uh, Iowa to talk to NRCS. So that was another big piece of it is is educating and sharing information. And then the other piece that I do a lot of is mentoring. I've got uh, two transitioning organic farmers that I'll be mentoring this year alone, and all of those pieces, I guess, sort of went into the the reason for the award. How hard is it to transition from a commercial operation to a an organic? I mean, is it a long process? Is it depend on more scale, like you do it on a smaller scale, or does that matter? Uh, it depends. I, I always tell people the f- most important thing is attitude, and you have to ask yourself, why do you want to do it? Is it is it to make money, or is it to really understand the benefits of doing organic farming? And I always caution those that are transitioning, you have to have the attitude that, for you, it's doing the right thing. As far as challenges, there is so much information out there today in comparison to when I started back in the 1970s. You can go on the Internet and find YouTube after YouTube after YouTube just uh, explaining things, and there are some real good blogs and sharing opportunities on the website as well, plus always kind, lots of um, farm field days. And so, and then the, and probably one of the more important things is the equipment and the knowledge and understanding of how to use this equipment. Those, the equipment has done giant leaps forward as far as being much better at managing the weeds that are always one of the biggest challenges for organic farming. And, and then finally, a third thing is 
the markets are much, much more available today than they were in the early days. So all of those things do make a difference. And so it does come down to management and attitude. And a short answer to your question is it's a whole lot easier to do it today than it was even 15 years ago. Well, if you, you were called the pioneer, so you were basically de- developing it and creating it as you went along. Are there any lessons learned, you know, from when you started way back then till now that you think of, ha, huh, I wish I would have known that then? <laughs> I, I guess I'd have to think a, a bit, but I think one of the biggest lessons I, I learned over time is what a good crop rotation can do for a farm. And one thing I always wanted to do but didn't get it accomplished now until this young farmer came on board with me, is having a a livestock system in an organic operation because it really completes the circle of of marketing for sure, but also the soil fertility and the cropping system. I I think those are some of the biggest pieces that I learned over over time for sure. Now, you are going to be speaking here at tonight on the campus here at Minnesota State University as part of the Water Resource Center, who is bringing you here to campus. And it says to learn from award-winning organic farmer and prairie restoration expert Carmen Fernholz. So what can people expect tonight? I believe it starts at 7 p.m. Sure. Well, I, I, I want to sort of give them a little bit of history of, of organic, of how it started, but probably how I got started into organic farming and some of the things that I've done over the years and learned over the years. And also then I want to talk to him a little bit about the Kearns because I know uh, one of the gentlemen that originally invited me asked me to speak about Kearns. But we'll talk a lot about organic, what I'm doing, where it's going, and then uh, talk about the Kearns. Okay, so that will be tonight starting at 7 p.m. till 8.30. (laughs) It is free and open to the public. And it will be on campus here at Minnesota State University in Ostrander Hall, which is in the Centennial Student Union. You can park in the sunken lot just out the Centennial Student Union, 7 to 8.30 p.m., free open to the public. So who who should come to this? Who is going to be best benefiting from this? Uh, for sure, I think farmers who are thinking about uh, organic farming. And I always like to really include the the food-buying people, the consumers who buy the food, and I say them as well because they are really part of protecting and uh, and holding our soil and water to a higher level because every time they buy food, they're voting on how they want their food produced. So uh, the full spectrum of people for sure. And, of course, any um, egg, egg instructors, people of that sort, NRCS, any people like that as well, uh, I think would find something beneficial in listening. Is there a premium paid for organic crops? I remember there was a a controversy where some guy was selling crops as organic and they really weren't, and so he got in big trouble. But is that because there's some sort of premium? There definitely is a premium. You know, sometimes it gets a little extreme. For example, last summer, organic soybeans were selling for up to $40 a bushel. They have settled back now to the mid to high 20s per bushel in comparison to the, I think, 12 to $15 conventional soybean. Corn definitely has a premium of, of generally 2 to $3 a bushel. 
wheat right now has probably got a $10, $10 premium. It fluctuates a little, but generally speaking, there is a significant premium on organic crop production, yes. Just wanted to, because you mentioned that it doesn't really cost that much more, so maybe that's another incentive to get people to try this organic method. Definitely. Absolutely. The initial cost might be there because you have to purchase some equipment, but once you can get established, you can you can actually save some, you know, cash outlays and and make your own personal labor become more valuable. Well, thank you. We've been chatting with Carmen Fernholtz, a Minnesota regenerative farming pioneer who will be speaking tonight in Ostrander Auditorium here on the campus at Minnesota State. It starts at 7 p.m. to 8.30, free and open to the public. We look forward to having you on campus. Well, thank you, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, find out more from me. Yeah, thanks, and and have safe travels. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. Everyday is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.